Oops, he did it again. He's made another modcast. He trusted us! You are listening to Mr. Suave's Mod Mod World at MrSwab.com and on ModRadioUK.net. Interrupting all programs. It's a mod.
Charlie, I do get such a bang out of this sort of thing. the modcast folks this is number 535 and we have a special guest canadian punk singer songwriter timothy cameron aka tc folk punk aka camera noise for me folk punk really hits the nail on the head for tim's sound the songs aren't necessarily folksy in their sound but in their attitude uh, their style and such The music is guitar-driven with nods to the 60s greats, the 70s and 80s early power pop, and and more contemporary stuff as well. All perfectly mixed together with insightful, clever, sometimes downright funny lyrics. Tim is a veteran of the Canadian music scene, a sort of one-man band who pretty much does it all himself on his albums. He has a uh, fistful of albums recorded as TC Folk Punk. And like I said, the lyrics are, are clever and interesting. The music is straight ahead, power pop and rock and roll. 60s influenced with hints and echoes of power pop. And also the folk part, right? Uh, you'll hear about some of the inspiration he's taken from folk artists and the influences that have driven him along in his career. Uh, the songs are great. Songs like Hair Crumbles the Bride. It's a, got a great early rock and roll sound, kind of a kinks-ish sort of stomper. And Caution Tape, very Who-ish. Has a definite early Pete Townsend feel to it. The last couple of years, though, Tim has been recording and playing his camera noise. And interestingly, he's taken many of his TC folk punk songs and is retooling them with full band adding additional instrumentation, and dropping the lyrics to make them all instrumentals. Uh, Many of them have a definite mod jazz vibe to them. Uh, All of them rock pretty hard as well. Described as Booker T and the MGs meet the smithereens in Paul McCartney's attic. And that really is spot on. I opened the show with TC Folk Punk Original, I've Got News For You, and then followed that with Atrophy Wife, from the 2022 Camera Noise album, A Night Off the Town. As always, I got the links and info about all this up at mrsuave.com. Got links to Tim's Bandcamp pages, and I strongly urge you to get over there and dig into the TC Folk Punk back catalog, but also definitely get the Camera Noise albums. They're all great. You won't be disappointed. Uh, Just for full disclosure, we actually did this interview a few weeks back, but... You know, various technical issues meant I had to do some editing sleight of hand and get creative with the cuts to a few tracks of music throughout. It was not the smoothest technical uh, journey we've had, but the interview itself was pretty smooth. It was pretty great, actually. We covered a lot of ground. Can a band have home field advantage? What's it like to retool your own music? What TV show did Tim audition for? And what movie was he actually casting? It's a great conversation. I truly enjoyed it, and I think you will too. Here we go. 
So I had this really cool aunt. She was uh, the youngest sister of my, my mom's youngest sister. And when she was still living at home with uh, her folks, my grandparents, we would go over there every Sunday. And she, you know, she had all the latest kind of records and stuff, and even some that were a bit older, one of which was the Twist and Shout album, uh, the Beatles album, which was a Canadian only release. And um, I would ask her every week, hey, can you put on the Twist and Shout album? I was about four at the time, three or four, probably three when it started, actually. And after about a year of that, she said, take the album home, play it all week instead of just hearing it on Sundays. You're obviously, you're going into withdrawal the other six days of the week or something. So I, I had that. And I, I was under the impression that you could become a Beatle. I thought it was just a job occupation. <laughs> and I thought, oh, there must be like lots of, you know, Beatles out there. I, I think I was imagining the whole Beatlemania, you know, touring company yeah. that existed. So I thought, oh, I'm going to be a Beatle when I grow up, you know, and I, you know, got another couple of albums, I, you know, whenever Christmas or birthday was coming around, I had this list of Beatles albums that I wanted. So I, you know, started to accumulate some of those. I remember being a kid and thinking, oh, they, they wear suits. Okay. I got to get a suit. So I was always, I always had jackets <laughs> and clip on ties and stuff that I'd wear to school because, uh, oh, why are you dressed up? I'm going to be a Beatle. So it was, uh, that was, that was. You were committed. Oh yeah, man. I should have been, I should have been committed. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Starting, I mean, that early at, at three, four years old, uh, recognizing the kind of music that you're going to be loving for the rest of your life sort yeah. of. Uh, is pretty amazing because I mean, as a kid, I liked music, but I didn't really get into it until, you know, I was probably 10, 11, 12 years old, a little bit of pop music on the radio and what other kids were listening to. It was, mm -hmm. in, and even beyond that. So you were, you were an early starter, an early adopter. I was. Yeah. Yeah. And then I kind of, you know, when I was in, you know, crack grades two, three, four, five, whatever. I was, you know, uh, going to be a hockey player. Uh, I'm going to be a, be an airline pilot. And then, but I, you know, then my folks moved a couple of times when I was a kid and in grade six, halfway through the year in grade six, during the Christmas break, we moved from this little town called Warminster, Ontario, into the slightly bigger town of Virilia, Ontario, started a new school. And the first kid that I met there, a friend of my Chris Patchett, who I'm still in contact with all these years later, he was kind of assigned to show the new kid, me, around like where are the lockers and where's the gym and all that. Yeah. So, but we hit it off right away. So it was fine. And, you know, we did that usually, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up kind of conversation? And he said, I'm going to be a rock star. And it was like, <laughs> being, I went, oh yeah, I have this in my Rolodex. Well, let me call that up again. And from, so from there, from grade, from the age of 12 onward, it was like, that's it, musician. I mean, at the time, rock star, but I'm, you know, I'm fine with just working musician at this point. Um, yeah. So that was, it, it just sort of carried on from there. It never stopped. And so you, you picked up a guitar, I'm guessing. Yes. Yes. I begged my parents for a guitar. And um, my dad found one at a yard sale for $15. It was an acoustic guitar, no name thing, but probably it, it seemed like in hindsight, it seemed like it was probably made in Chicago, like in the 1950s or something. It was that it had that kind of harmony K, you know, catalog guitar kind of vibe to it. Um, neck like a two by four uh, action <laughs> up by the 12th fret. The action was, I'm not kidding, half an inch off the fretboard. The string, it was just murder, but I was determined. I would just, would, you know, squeeze the crap out of the strings. My fingers would be killing me. I'm like, well, I guess this is what you got to do. I thought that was how guitars were. And, and I had right. so much admiration. How does Hendrix do it? Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. That's, uh, that's pretty amazing. And you've been playing uh, guitar now for a long time. And yeah. you play, I know on a lot of your albums, you play pretty much all the in instruments or, or many of them, mm -hmm. right? When yeah. you're not with maybe your first album or one of your early albums, you had a band, right. That you recorded with, but then it seems like you're doing most of it all yourself now. Yeah, I was in, I mean, I, I did, you know, through the nineties and two thousands, I was in a, a number of bands and we put out, 
you know, cassette albums and CD albums and such. So uh, the Hippocrits was, I think, the last band I was in were the actual band members that you hear on the album. And everything, I'm trying to think back now, I think everything going back 15 years at least, it's all me. Um, wow. Yeah. I'm trying to think. It's a lot of work. Well, that's <laughs> thank God for multi-tracking. Thank you, Les Paul. I owe you. <laughs> so I, I'm going to back up again just a little bit because sure. I love to get people's origin stories. You love the Beatles mm -hmm. early on. Uh, what were some of the other early and or, you know, even later, what have been some of your biggest inspirations? Um, the really big ones I, I can remember. So the Beatles were the, the first one and that kind of carried me through I, I liked a lot of other bands but as far as the you know any artist where i went well that's it that's like the epitome that's the pinnacle you know no arguing it was it was the beatles and then but i started branching out and thanks to the friend i was talking with chris patchett you know he had some older albums he was the youngest or second youngest sibling he had some older brothers and he had inherited all of their old rolling stones albums and oh yeah whatever and so you know i would hear some songs over his place because we always hang around at, in his uh at his house and play records basically you know and dream about being rock stars and draw guitars on paper you know sheets of paper while we were hanging out and stuff but so one of the bands i kept that would come up every so often was the birds i thought oh, i love like these guys so i started seeking out uh this is back when you could you could you know go to a record store and find 45s right like the seven inch mm -hmm. they were still that was still uh you know a common uh musical medium and so i started finding old birds 45s I love them. And I started noticing this, this name, often the songwriting credits, you know, you have the title of the song and then tiny little letters in brackets. It would say B Dylan. Who's <laughs> this B Dylan guy keeps seeing that? Yeah. It must be Bob. I've heard Bob Dylan. I wonder who that is. Okay. So I went to the library, borrowed a Dylan album. I borrowed uh, bringing it all back home. I was 15 years old at the time. And I put it on the stereo at home and it blew my mind. I just, I went, Oh, you can do this with lyrics. Oh my God. And like the liner notes, he had this kind of like, stream of consciousness kind of almost ee e. coming mm -hmm. kind of uh way of writing and he put a book tarantula which is just a book of his poetry which i've, I've got an ancient copy of that here too just reading liner notes and the like the the lyrics of the songs and and, and everything i was just like wow because that was the album that had uh, gates of eden and uh it's all right ma i'm only bleeding and mr tambourine man on side two and that was like, just, I, I was just like, what's going on? I thought I knew how music worked and what's this? You can do with lyrics. And so I went down that rabbit hole and I got so many Dylan albums, the stuff up to my favorite stuff of his has always been up to blonde on blonde. And then after that, he kind of may or may not have had a motorcycle accident. Who knows? But he took a break and he went kind of country. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's fine. But that's, you know, I, I love the, the early stuff with um, right. like the, like the guys in the band backing him and the Hammond B3 organ and all that. So that was that. You say you love me and you're thinking of me, but you know you could be wrong. You say you told me that you wanna hold me, but you know you're not that strong.
the sound of ideologies. Fuck the sound of ideologies. Fuck the sound of ideologies clashing. Hi, this is Sal from the Gold Stars in Chicago, Illinois. You're listening to Mr. Swab's Mod Mod World at MrSwab.com. Oh, yeah, baby. The next thing that really grabbed me, here I go giving away my age, was the <laughs> the whole uh, late 70s new wave thing. I heard Elvis Costello. I heard Accidents Will Happen by Elvis Costello on the radio and had another, whoa, what is this moment? And then um, Get the Knack was released. Oh, yeah. And that was the one. That was just, I remember... I remember it coming out of the stereo. I can also remember the time of day and everything. And it was, um, I don't think it was my Sharon. I think it was, uh, that's what the little girls do. But it was like, it just grabbed me and pinned me up to the wall and said, here's what you're doing. And it was so great yeah. because, because up until then it had been disco. It had disco, disco, disco everywhere. And then finally here are these guys and they're not just like playing guitar, like poppy guitar stuff. Look at the back of the album. They got the skinny ties and the white shirts and the, boots <laughs> right. and the, whole, and the Vox amps. And you go, Oh my God, this, I know. Oh, I've seen this summer before. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. so I was in, that was it. I bought into that. Boom. Sign me up. Do you remember you mentioned hearing them on the radio? Yeah. And I always think back, you know, when it was hard to get music, then you would hear something on the radio and then you had to spend some time and effort trying to figure it out, especially if it wasn't, you know, in the top 40 or disco that maybe you could find in a, in a record store or something, but to yeah. seek out other things. And I would think in the U S at the time, finding an Elvis Costello record when it was released, wasn't the easiest thing to do. Probably not, but being in Canada, this is one of the things that um, not a lot of people realize about Canada because um, not so much now, but at the time, you know, Canada is one of the British Commonwealth countries, right? Right. So there, there are these kind of links to like um, corporate links and such to the UK. Okay. And then the USA is right next door to us. So we, we've always had this kind of like combination of half American, half, well, maybe a third American, a third uh, British and a third Canadian culture, all kind of like blending together. And that's why the, like the, going back to the Beatles, that twist and shout album, the Beatles were huge in Canada about six months before America knew who they were. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You got, you got a, a leg up on us, so to speak, because you had that British connection. So yeah. uh, British albums and things when they came out, wouldn't make their way to America, but they did to Canada a lot yeah. sooner. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And okay. vice versa. And a lot of stuff that would not, that would be, you know, fairly, fairly big in the USA would never cross the Atlantic, but it would cross the border and come North, right. especially, I mean, Toronto, we're right across the lake from Buffalo, New York. Yeah. Um, and at nighttime, I mean, back then when AM radio was something you'd listen to for, for top 40, a certain time of night, we could pick up. I mean, I remember sitting with headphones on and playing with the radio and just turning the dial to see what I could find. I'd listen to WINS in New York. Go, oh, my God, that's New York. Because we we're kind of far away from New York to be picking up right. a signal. Or, you know, or you hear something from Chicago or Detroit or whatever. And it's like, wow. So, yeah, things would things would drift across. And also because we we. Um, if you live anywhere remotely near the Canada-US border, and if you have cable television at the time, you would get ABC and CBS and NBC and probably PBS. You'd at least have access to one of the affiliates. So any show that was on there, you would get you could see music videos or you know, so, I don't know, solid gold or you know, right. not the best example, but the dancers were nice. Uh <laughs> you know, yeah. So so it is it's funny that Canada, 
you know, we have a very small population. We're, our population is only a tenth of the, the USA population. Um, so we don't tend to make a lot of noise about it, but it is this, this thing, cultural thing that happens here. So that explains how you get to your TC folk punk. Uh, yeah. M- merging Bob Dylan mm-hmm. with uh, late seventies, early eighties kind of sound yep. sort of, and uh, it's all guitar driven, which when I first discovered your music, which was maybe 2021 or something, I don't know. Right. I hadn't come across it before. And when I did, I was like, this is fantastic. I love the guitar driven singer songwriter sort of stuff like you're doing. And I just really liked it. So hearing about your interest in, early 60s sounds and then Dylan and the birds and then uh, mentioning Elvis Castillo in the neck. That just makes sense. You can see, yeah, it's a, it's a bit obvious when I, when I probably line it up that way. Yeah. Right. The, yeah. the dots all connect themselves sort of. Um, yeah. Yeah. There was one final um, kind of musical epiphany. Uh, well, a few uh, violent films. I thought violent films, when I first heard them were really cool. That whole sort of busking setup, although that doesn't really come through in the music, but there was a time when I, I just wanted to put together a three piece. That was just that like guy playing brushes on snare, me on guitar and one guy, you know, on a, maybe an acoustic bass never happened. Couldn't find the guys, but so that was one kind of road I went down, but then, um, and I was at the time. So by this time we're talking like late eighties, early nineties, I was living in a little town called Owen sound, little hick town, uh, you know, four hours away from Toronto. I was I was starting to book gigs and I had written a bunch of songs and I was trying to do something different because I'd seen the the sort of cliched folky singer-songwriter thing done to death. I thought I want to sort of take that, kind of go somewhere with it and start to incorporate these kind of you know punky new wave elements. I was sort of playing around and then I was one day I was going to a town because there were a number of little towns you, you sort of drive an hour or two hours out to, to play a game mm-hmm. a two-nighter you know summer so you know around cottage country and uh i went to this one place and i knew a couple of musicians from this town and they came out to my gig and afterwards we went to a party and one of them put on this album by a guy named billy bragg mm-hmm. and uh, i don't know billy bragg but it was yep yeah and so i heard that one oh my god that's it that's what i'm trying to do you know i gotta get an electric guitar right good thank you and uh, that was it, you know. So wow, that was, and you were on your way, pretty much. Yeah. Then moved to Toronto. Um, a few months later, I had a couple of uh, friends who were coming down to go to university and college, and I said, "Hey, uh, need someone else to split the rent with you there? Uh, mind if I uh, hitchhike with you? Bring a couple of guitars?" So that was how I got down here, and you know, started just started finding gigs as, as soon as I could. The idea of Billy Bragg is interesting. I mean, he's a folk artist, right? Would you call him a folk artist? I, more so now. It's funny because he was, he came out of that whole thing in England where he was part of the, or he was in the, the sort of punk explosion. I mean, he was, mm-hmm. and that nobody knew at the time, right? So punk rock sort of got through to him. And he uh, has said that in his early days, he sort of saw himself as a one man clash. He was like, it's uh, the yeah. of the clash, right? So he was a lot more punk. He's, He's kind of gone back and discovered more, I guess, you know, he did the the Mermaid Avenue project, like resurrecting some old um, Woody Guthrie lyrics. I almost said Woody Allen. Woody Guthrie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that could be interesting too. Yeah, someone should um, tell Billy about it. Hey, Billy, got an idea. Different Woody. Yeah. Um, so I think he's he's gone more kind of acoustic and and down that road. Still sounds great. Still. Yeah. and But he's always had that, I guess it's, you say one man clash. That makes sense. Mm. Political sort of social cultural um yeah to him he did the uh stuff in the mid mid 80s i guess late 80s the red wave 
Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. With Paul Weller and all these other artists at the time, mm -hmm. uh, which was super political, very anti Thatcher at the time, of course. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, but that, that seems very folk like to me. Folk seems like the wrong word for that, but it really is. Yeah. Well, once again, he's he's sort of the combination because it would be, you know, like sort of political kind of folk music based lyrics. Um, but he'd be, you know, wailing on an electric guitar. Yeah. Sort of like yeah. Do, 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 like that pumping, you know, um, driving kind of a punk rhythm guitar style. So, yeah. So once you that's another kind of, you know, folk meets punk kind of thing.
Yes, she plays her part If you let her go, she will break your ego and your heart That's what the little girls do So for TC Folk Punk, how many albums did you release under that name? Um, first one came out in 2010. So one, and then it was just called TC Folk Punk. And then in 2014, I released one called Lamest Fast Words. And then I got busy writing soundtracks for movies and stuff. Yeah, I'll get to that in a second. I have a question yeah, about yeah. that. And then, um, and then I guess it was during the pandemic that I sort of picked up again. Unless I'm, I may have forgotten an album. <laughs> I don't know. It's all a blur. Yeah. Well, I I love it that the songs, some of them, uh, you you cite the Beatles, and yet a few of them I hear, and I think, man, this just sounds very whoish. You know, this open yeah. power chord kind of guitar ringing, um, and it has an early Pete Townsend feel to some of them. Yeah, also uh, another big influence. Yeah, yeah, I I have really enjoyed those, and then more recently, you've gotten into. Something that I find kind of interesting, it took me a minute of listening to Camera Noise, mm -hmm. which is your latest project, I suppose, uh, where you're just doing instrumentals, right? Yeah. And they're actually, but what you're doing is re-recording in a slightly different style, your own previous songs. Is that right? Yeah, some. Um, I sort of have some songs that were kind of popular with friends or, you know, like my my limited little following. Um, so I thought, well, here's, you know, here's your favorite song, but presented with a full band. Because people would often say to me, why don't you have a full band? And I'm going, well, I don't know. I can't afford them. <laughs> Gigs <laughs> you are the full band. I are the full uh, band. I am the full <laughs> band. I am the full band. I am the full band. Well, I love your description. Uh, you, you described it as Booker T and the MGs meets the smithereens in paul mccartney's attic yeah someone else actually a, a friend of mine described it as that i said oh thank you <laughs> going to use that thanks very much it well it's perfect it really fits it um and it sounds funny because booker t you get a certain vibe from that and then the smithereens and paul mccartney obviously your beatles influence all these things meshing together uh and it works it has kind of this what i would say a mod jazz vibe to it and yet they're pretty, some of them are pretty hard rocking kind of instrumentals. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I want to do. I want to keep doing something kind of power pop-ish, but sort of slightly slightly odd chord changes. There's a bit of XTC influence sort of mm. up here and there. Um, yeah, and, I, and I've, I'm trying to do sort of a half and half, like uh, the album will, the next one will be kind of half reworkings of TC folk punk or even older stuff that's already been released and then three brand new ones i have so many i have like i don't know 300 melodies with no lyrics and i just i haven't got like i'll wake up with a song in my head a melody in my head but trying to write the lyrics is like oh god it takes forever you know instrumentals are there's something about them that is just i like them as much or more often than songs with lyrics in a yeah. lot of ways I, mean, I, think I just really dig groove into the music itself and it, it can give you a whole feeling that um i went back and listened to some of your songs uh, caution tape mm. with the lyrics and then the re-recorded different version with the you know the organ sound in it yeah, and yeah. stuff and and um they're very 
I mean, they just have totally different vibes because of the lyrics. Uh, and I like them both, but it's just interesting to me how much it changes when you either add or remove lyrics. Yeah, it's funny. It's almost like there's that when you remove the lyrics, there's a certain ambiguity. It's almost like people make up their own stories about what the song's about. And and that allows some yeah. to connect to the song even more, even though it was never intended to, to connect with them that way. Because I don't know. I don't know all these strangers. They're just listening to music and digging it, right? So um, it's funny. And the other thing I found with camera noise is that it's getting played a lot more in non-English speaking countries. It, it, oh. Caution Tape or one of the others um, was played on two different radio stations or podcasts in Greece a week or two ago. Uh, how did I don't even know who these people are? I don't know how they found it, but they found it. And <laughs> well, it makes sense. They don't, you know, if there are no lyrics, then yeah, they can just enjoy the music and not be like trying to figure out what you're saying if they don't speak English all yeah. that well. And that was a secret. That's why the ventures were as big as the Beatles in Japan because there was no right. to worry about. So I kind of like that whole. It's you know kind of cliched sounding, but music is its own language, and 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 that. And so if I can give somebody something to hum, and the other thing I find too is that not a lot of people pay that much attention to lyrics. Like I did the singer songwriter thing, you know, for so long. And I would sort of have this line, Oh, here, here comes this triple entendre that I wrote. Everybody get impressed. <laughs> and they're just kind of like staring at me, talking to each other. It's like, it, it would go right over everybody's head and I go, he didn't, he didn't catch that. So uh, I don't know. I mean, anybody sits down and reads the lyrics, you know, I think they're, maybe they're just people who are just lyric people. And other people yeah. just kind of like the music to, you know, massage their brains a bit. And that's all they, they want out of it. Right. Yeah. I did notice that I think in one of your songs, you name check uh, Shag the Artist. Uh, Is that right? Or or am I wrong? I don't know. I might have. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> I was like, I, I swear I heard a line somewhere and I wish I'd written it down to remember where I heard it. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, uh, oh shag and i'm like does he mean the artist i think he means the artist uh because i'm a huge shag art fan oh yeah um oh i love this stuff yeah but i i love your lyrics i mean they're they are clever they're insightful um and sometimes i get your double entendres and sometimes maybe i don't but i enjoy it very much regardless so oh good good you see Um, well yeah i mean I, i you obviously seem like the type who would get that so that's why it's great. I'm, I'm so glad we bumped into each other out in the out in the interwebs. Yeah, no kidding. This being a, a mod show, I will ask you. Mm-hmm. I, I ask everybody this when they come on. How do you define mod? What does mod mean for you? Um, well, it's it's not just the music. It's kind of a visual style for me. Um, it's one of those things that I like. I would. I don't want to go too far into define. I can only define it for myself, let's say, because to try to right. define, because it's so blurry around the edges. Um, to me, it's like all those cool little Vespa scooters, um, you know, uh, Union Jack jackets. Uh, very British, obviously, um, and uh, skinny ties, all that that kind of fashion stuff. And then musically, um, you know, small four or five piece combos jangly guitars uh you know rick and rickenbackers galore um and did you ever have a mod phase early on seems like everybody had a mod phase at I, one point especially if they were in the 60s yeah i had a bit of one yeah around uh i was 21 years old and the who were kind of the next thing i discovered and i guess they would almost count as one of my my little epiphanies like i kind of always knew who they were but i just dove in a bit more deeply and um yeah so i i was i 
taught myself how to windmill without hurting my hand. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was my contribution. And I, was, yeah, I wanted to get a Vespa scooter. And, uh, you know, I had this, uh, this really cool kind of military jacket that I picked up yeah. at the surplus store that was, it was like a dress, a dress tunic from West, <laughs> West Germany, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, All it, the good parkas seem to come from West Germany. I don't know why. Colder there. <laughs> I guess I've, yeah. I have more mountains than it does. Um, so your latest uh, or one of your latest album covers for Camera Noise has a nod to that with man the the cool scooter the Warhol treatment to it on the cover. Yeah, that's uh that was that was kind of intentional. It's not so much that I was going after the. I'm not I'm not, not trying to like target to a mod audience necessarily. Right. But uh, I thought, well, this visually kind of I think matches sonically what's going on in the album, so it seemed like like something to go for yeah i found some ancient picture uh in a magazine of a vespa and scanned it and then just uh started messing with the colors and flipping it around and doing things and then you know lots of lots of uh, arrows in the artwork that was another big mod thing you know oh right all the symbols have always been uh important in the whole mod thing and i still do it it doesn't it, it works if you want to get some attention for something you put a target on it yeah exactly yeah. you know <laughs> or union jack uh to a certain extent um there is this kind of like unspoken visual code it's almost like like a certain you know hand signal from the umpire saying hey over here here's right this mod and everybody's like oh there it is found some found some mod go get it <laughs> <laughs> so out of all this i mean you've been making music a long time do you have personal favorites in your songs do you love some of your kids more than your other kids Oh yeah. I mean, there's some, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy that they all, you know, got finished enough to be recorded, but um, there are some where I guess kind of go, yeah, that's, I would buy that. You know, there's one on the, which album, the second last camera noise album, whenever I sink my teeth into you. Oh yeah. Uh, I've always kind of been happy with that one. I didn't, it was, it was really weird trying to record it for camera noise. Cause I was, I was like programming in trumpets and stuff like that. And I hadn't done that before. So but I have this whole, when I first wrote it, okay, so it was inspired by an Elvis Costello song called And in Every Home from his uh, Imperial Bedroom album. And then that's like a full orchestration thing. His, and apparently his, his Costello's uh, keyboard player, Steve Naive, like charted out the whole orchestration for the the, the entire orchestra. Wow. Yeah, because he went to, um, he was a graduate from some really well-known music college. Not, not well-known enough that I can recall the name, of course, but... <laughs> Yeah, so he was he was kind of like Costello's secret weapon in the band. So yeah, Steve Naive like charted out and conducted the orchestra at Abbey Road Studios for that song. But I remember hearing it and just going, "Wow, this is like this has got everything going on. Everything in five kitchen sinks have been thrown into this." So I kind of started writing a song after hearing it. And my, so that was the the one I came up with. And it shares a couple of little chord turnarounds with the Costello song and that. So that was what I wanted to do. But it was, um, I mean, I got as far as as a couple of brass lines and went, "Okay." This, this is turning into this one song is going to be more work than the rest of the album. I think I'll stop there. But yeah. Well, anyway, end up with a rock opera in a minute. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was one I was really happy with. Um, and then there's, there's one on the, the new album, how he spent his summer, which is a really odd quirky kind of six, eight time thing. But I, I, I kind of like, I kind of chuckle when I hear that. Cause I, I think I made it sonically intentionally silly in parts it's a bit ridiculous here and there like there's this completely over the top fuzz bass going on and all that so yeah but i'm happy with all of them you know they're um and i think i'm a little more satisfied 
with the camera noise versions in some cases too. Cause Interesting. I, yeah. I'm sort of able to, to capture sounds in my head a bit better recording at home. Yeah. yeah. And they're the more recent things that you've worked on. So, mm, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, you've had a lot of time and experience with the songs and now you get to sort of not recraft them, but you do, you get to yeah, redo them in a way and, and add things or, you know, do things that you think now work better than you realized in the beginning. That's true. Yeah. It's a lot of trial and error. You know, you, you take a song out and you play it in front of a few audiences, a singer songwriter and you go, yeah, okay, this is, this one ain't working. And so it's like you don't actually know a song doesn't work until you just sort of sense in the room that people are bored now. <laughs> so I'm going to be on board with this one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I like to ask about songs that you like from your own catalog. I was talking to a friend recently in a band and I happened to mention that I, I was walking my dogs and one of his old songs came up and I loved it. And he's mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, well, well whatever to each their own <laughs> it was very clear he's like we don't play that live and don't don't care for it much anymore uh and i was like wow so that means there are songs that people write and then they end up not liking them kind of surprised me yeah and I, maybe certain songs like maybe one song is good for 300 plays before you get tired of doing it at gigs maybe another one's like yeah. 50 you don't know when they're new they're new and they're all shiny but then yeah i've had some where i, I drop some songs sooner than others and, you know, there are other ones I've, you know, been playing for a decade. So currently, I always like to ask, what are you listening to? If we were on a road trip, uh, what would I hear coming out of your stereo? Maybe anything that you are going to these days that you really like? Oh, lots of stuff. I guess the one the one thing would have to be James Clark Institute. Yes. Uh, you're, yeah, you've had him on the show, I think, haven't you? James? I have not yet, oh, okay. um, but man, that last album was fantastic. Oh, no. uh, I always played, like their stuff. I've heard little clips of the new one. and uh, Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's been another sort of inspirational. He, okay, James Clark has this thing in common with Elvis Costello for me, where I will listen to a new album or a bunch of songs from either of them, and then I just go, oh, man, I got to write a song. Songwriting is so cool. These guys make songwriting seem so cool. And, and Jim just has that ability to flick that switch in my brain and i'll hear you know a bunch of stuff from him and go oh yeah okay okay that's how you that's how you write damn songs all right mm-hmm. let's go do it you know um and he's a he's a great guy really nice guy and uh we we were actually in bands together we were in a we were in a british 60s british invasion tribute band called the toggles that was where we first met i was on bass <laughs> and, drums. and it was all uh you know like animals yardbirds who yeah and some Jerry and the Pacemakers and Herman's Hermits because you got to appeal to everybody at the bar, right? So, right, right. See, I would call that like a mod band. There's your mod phase right there. Yeah, that was doing the, all the British invasion stuff. That was one of the many ones. Yeah, he and and we had a guitar player, Rob, and Rob was almost. I mean, he looked like Davy Jones. He was probably <laughs> just like you know living in the '60s, even though it was the late '90s. And uh, he would always show up with some you know, vintage Vox amp. We go to a gig and, oh, here's Rob's new amp of the week. Oh, it's a, it's a Marshall combo from 1965. Where'd you get that, Rob? Oh, I traded the, you know, I traded the old win yeah. for it. Oh, good. You know, and um, I, I got, a, I had a, uh, uh, there's a guy named Jerry Jones who was building Dan Electro sort of copies, but really well made, better than the, the current Dan Electro instruments. And uh, he was based out of Nashville. And so I had one of his Longhorn basses. So it had the the look too um yeah but it was fun and we got we got into some of the, the fashion we tried to like you know wear the the right clothes for it and everything so yeah the, definitely that was a that was another 
another mod phase. <laughs> Everybody has one. I'm still stuck in mine. <laughs> it's a good place to be. I don't yeah, know. If I'm yeah. leave. I like I it. I wind up going back. So, yeah. <laughs> so do you have any uh, guilty pleasures? Is there a record in your collection that might shock your fans? <laughs> it's funny. I, you know, I was thinking about that just last night about guilty pleasure and the whole concept. And I'm thinking anything that I've ever had that was at one time a guilty pleasure is now kind of acceptable. Like I, when I was a great, right. I remember being grade seven and liking the Beatles. And that was like Beatles. Oh man, they're old. My parents listen to Beatles. My listen to Beatles. <laughs> and now it's like, I'm going, yeah, I, th- I think I proved myself right there guys. You know, cause you're all listening to the Beatles. Now I had one, one friend in high school who just teased me mercilessly about liking the Beatles. And then he had a daughter and somehow the daughter got on the Beatles and now he's this friend of mine who used to laugh at me about liking the Beatles. He's a huge Beatles fan through his daughter becoming a Beatles fan. Wow. You know, so it's like, yeah, yeah, told you. I told you. Talk about going full circle. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah, uh talking with um uh Simone from Kid Gulliver, and she's like guilty pleasures. She just totally didn't get it. And she said, I don't feel guilty about anything I listen to if I like it. Yeah. And I thought, wow, I wish I could be that way sometimes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the monkeys was another one, but now I oh. vindicated because so many people sort of get the monkeys and, and sort of appreciate that they, they weren't as prefabricated. Um, right. It seems like they they were really striving and trying to, you know, break new ground musically, which is really admirable. Uh, the knack. I mean, I, I remember I still, I have never stopped liking get the knack, but there was a time when it was, it was a bit out of fashion. Um, the monkeys were the first album i ever bought with my own money oh which one which album meet the monkeys you know i think that's the very first one right and uh just i can remember putting the record on and just singing to all of those songs last train to clarksville and you know that absurd gonna buy me a dog (laughs) you know but it was so different from anything that i was hearing on the radio this was probably 1978 or 79 okay yeah and I hadn't really discovered the the new wave of music uh, that was coming. Uh, kids in my neighborhood were still listening to Andy Gibb on the radio, you know, shadow dancing <laughs> and stuff. Um, and then there's the monkeys and it's this kind of old thing, but it was new to me. And man, it just blew my mind. And I have been a huge monkeys fan ever since then. And then, of course, seeing them on TV, you know, in the reruns of the show and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, when so I don't think of that guilty guiltily at all no i know yeah so, so when you saw the reruns was that the mtv mid-80s reruns or which one which did you catch? um i remember them as a kid on saturday mornings on some tv station in southern california so it was before mtv they just somebody was running reruns of the old monkey shows yeah, um and you come home from school and there'd be uh reruns like that and old sitcom show the brady bunch and yeah, things yeah. and then yeah in the mid 80s when the monkeys the new monkeys came it was like what in the world are they doing i i realized what they were trying to do to cash in on something but i was like don't mess with it man the original stuff was so great yeah i got i got a little uh story to tell you i was actually uh like a semi-finalist for the new monkeys i really yeah i went i traveled i heard about it happening and uh and okay so my aunt eva who gave me the first beatles album she worked at the toronto star and uh, she was on the switchboard. She like if somebody, if a reporter needed to find some politician from the Philippines, 
my aunt Eva was amazing. She could track this person <laughs> in the villa in some other country, right? And uh, put them through to the reporter. So anyway, so she was she was able to find information on everything. And I had heard that there were going to be these, these auditions for the new monkeys. And I told her, I said, can you find out about this? So she got me all the details, the date, you know, show up at this time and all the rest of it. So I took a bus from Toronto, an overnight bus from Toronto to New York City. Wow. And got in line with about 98 million other people. <laughs> I just remember the lineup for the auditions. It, it was at um, SR, what was it called? It was this big kind of. It was this building that housed um, like rehearsal studios and all sorts of things. Yeah. SIR, SRO, something like that. I remember the the lineup just went like for two blocks and reporters were coming along and interviewing people. And I got interviewed because somebody heard that I'd come all the way from, from Toronto for this. I'm like, Whoa, right. This guy's a novelty. Let's talk to him. You know? Yeah. So it was, it was cool. But they were, so there are these kind of stages you had to go through. And I got through a couple of, a couple of stages. Other people were told, thanks for coming. See you around. But I managed to get through a few more, get past a few more gatekeepers. And then that was, that was like kind of the last I heard of it. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting when you hear what the new monkeys album was, it was of course not the monkeys. And I don't know why at the time I expected it would be. Mm -hmm. um, but looking back on it years later, I was doing some research for, I did a podcast about the monkeys and, uh, all the things that they went on to afterwards and all this stuff and was looking at the new monkeys. And one of the people that was selected was a guy and he was in a band called the wigs in the early eighties. Oh, yeah. And that turned me on to that band, which was a really good kind of power pop band uh, at the time. And I was like, wow, this is, you know, it's funny where you can find things and yeah, you know, stumble across something that becomes, you know, the band pops up in my playlists all the time and shuffle now. Yeah, it's so funny. It had not been for the new monkeys. You probably wouldn't have had that. In your right. Place. So, yeah. 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 So, yeah, well, that's that's good. That's a, a nice little trivia night fact right there about <laughs> yeah. Oakland, Timothy Cameron. What TV show did he try out for? Yeah. <laughs> that you've never seen. Because it never, I think the monkeys wound up on Channel Forty Seven at three a.m. on Sunday. Yeah, year and that was that was it, and it lasted a year and it was gone. I never actually saw it, but a friend of mine told me that I was lucky. I didn't, uh, I didn't actually get it because it was like the worst TV show he'd ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was not the uh, the end all be all of the monkeys. That's no, for sure. No, it was, it was a lot of them. And the um, I was going to mention talking about guilty pleasure, so. The, the monkey scene reminded me I had this, I still have it, this little Rickenbacker guitar. And uh, I took it with me on the bus and walked around New York city with this expensive you know, guitar. I didn't know anything about New York city. So I'm walking around this thing, but, and I, and I still have it, but I would list that guitar as a guilty pleasure. Like any really yeah, Rickenbackers for me are kind of a guilty pleasure because they are so cool. And, but I have this love, I don't say it's not love them or hate them kind of really. It's like love them or, be kind of disappointed that they didn't, you know, I feel like, you know, when a kid, you know, gets a report card home and say, you know, Billy's not living up to his potential. I feel like that's, you know, with Rickenbacker guitars. <laughs> I'm sure your guitar is lovely. sounds great, but it's not quite living up to his potential. You know, like there are just some really odd little design things on Rickenbackers. And you think you guys have had 60 years to fix this. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What, what have they been doing in the meantime? Right. Yeah. They're just, they're, they haven't, I mean, I guess it's great in a way they, they kind of got right the first time, but they just got to do a couple little tweaks like that, that tailpiece with the letter R that the strings always fall out of, you know, we got to <laughs> do something with that, you know, but whatever there it's, it's almost like, I think only a Rickenbacker is like only a, a British sports car 
where you're always tinkering and under the hood and you know oh, yes tighten that thing up again and whatever but it's worth it you know it's a it's a fun drive <laughs> What is up next for you? Uh, are you working on anything new that you want to tease us about right now? Just the uh, the next Camera Noise album, which I'm going to, or mini album. Uh, I'm going to drop drop that in July, probably. I sort of do, like uh, all the albums, all the Camera Noise albums are six songs long because I find people don't have the time or the attention span to go through a full dozen songs. So I kind of see it like I'm releasing a full album this year. You get side one in January and I'll give you side two in July once you've had time to listen to side one first, you know? So there you go. Yeah. People can buy a subscription. They should. Yeah. They should. <laughs> right? I, I like that idea. I'm going to start as soon as we ring off, I'm going to start selling them on that concept. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's the main thing. I'm just, the, the camera thing is going so well and I'm really enjoying it. And um, I like recording at home. It's, it's kind of, it's quiet today, but I'm in an apartment building. It can be kind of noisy. So trying to do vocals is not really tricky. Yeah. It's really tricky. And um and also having to write lyrics. So the instrumental thing is just, it's kind of like that, that Zen, it's the path of least resistance. 
I'm doing these things, these camera noise things, it's going well, and I'm finding new fans all the time. And um, I'm just going to keep rolling with that until further notice. And that's about it. And then, um, you know, the uh, one of the the films I did music for called the film called Stupid for You is on, I think, Apple TV now. So Apple TV. Uh, and you did another one, I think, because the yeah. the one that I either read about or heard about was Life in the Sixth. It's like love, an independent love film, right? Yeah. Love, love in the Sixth. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so you've done multiple films. Uh, well, two. Yeah. These two. two. Yeah. But and uh, you acted in them as well. I acted in the first one, yeah. And in the first one, okay. Yeah, and it was it was kind of funny that I I my audition consisted of uh, the director, producer, writer uh, Jude Clausen saying, "Can you act?" And I said, "I think so." She said, "You're in." So, uh, <laughs> yeah, but it was I, I I guess I did okay. You know, it was uh, it was a really really low budget film, but it was quirky and weird enough that it got picked up. It's on it's on uh, Amazon Prime and uh, a couple of other places. And the second one, what's the the other one that you mentioned? Uh, Stupid for you. Stupid for you, and it's on Apple. I think it's on Apple TV. Yeah. Uh, okay. It's on. It's on something I don't get, but I've seen it anyway, so I don't have. Oh, to. cool! I'm going to watch these. Yeah, and I'll get back to you. Okay. <laughs> I really like. So you did all the music for them, or composed no. original music, I, or I did. Yeah, I, I composed. Um, the songs were purposely written for the film. Most of them. There are a couple of background songs that were you know, some of, some of which are things from other albums of mine, but uh, most of the music was, was composed for, uh, for the, the movie. And it's, you know, the lyrics are kind of part of the script. So it kind of pushes the story along like a musical does. Um, hmm. But myself, and there's another fellow, Asher Ettinger, who co-wrote, basically Jude would have the lyrics for a song and she would say, I kind of want it to be like, uh, walk like an Egyptian, or I kind of want it to be like this Tom Petty. <laughs> and then, you know, I would take it and go, okay, so, I'll go for that general feel, but I'm not going to actually lift the, you know, right melody or anything, but she would, I think she would write lyrics to a melody and then I'd have to come up with, you know, a, a different melody that would still kind of support where the syllables accent and, and such. So, so that was, that was how that was the, the method for, for doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty fun. Yeah. Any, any films in the future? Uh, not that I know of. I mean, I, a few people have said, oh, wow, great, uh, great songs on the soundtrack. And so the, you know, the name's kind of floating around out there. Um, I don't know. Uh, somebody might contact me. I'm, I'm up for it if they want to. All right. I'll, I'll, uh, let my people in Hollywood know. Would you please? I, I was <laughs> going to ask that Rob, but I, you know, I wasn't sure how to work it in the conversation, but thank you. Do you ever make it out to Seattle? No, I, I made it to the closest I've been is, uh, Vancouver and Whistler, mm-hmm. BC. Because Love and oh. Six had its uh its world premiere in Whistler. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. But I've not I've only been to New York and Chicago, I think, are the only two places in the States I've ever made it to. And you played it the International Pop Overthrow, right? Yes, over in, in Liddy Pool. Oh god, yeah, that was just walk around and you know i've read um the beatles first manager alan williams wrote a book years ago called the man who gave the beatles away and i got a copy of that when i was 16 and i just absorbed it (laughs) i'd be reading that while listening to the beatles at the star club album you know it was just i just immersed myself in that whole leather jacket you know young teams in a band kind of kind of thing because they were they were they were the punks of their time really yes they were yeah so you know he he'd talk about all these things in Liverpool, like the, the Mersey tunnel and the Adelphi hotel, I think Adelphi, whatever hotel. And so when I was over there, I, I was, I was in Liverpool for, I think about five days. I, on days where I wasn't gigging in the, you know, or the afternoons, cause the, the, the festival wasn't starting up yet till later that day. 
I was walking all around Liverpool and sort of discovering, oh, that's that street. I remember that <laughs> street where Alan Williams said this happened. And I went into, um, there's a pub just down the street from the, the cavern called The Grapes. And there's a picture of the Beatles with Pete Best, when Pete Best was still there, sitting in this corner booth. And wow. I the picture framed above the corner booth. Now, I didn't realize that until I got back to Toronto because I was kind of like, wow, that's a busy corner of this little pub. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> There's Japanese tourists getting their picture taken in this corner. I'm like, okay, must be a park. What's going on? But it was it was something because in the grapes, like all the tables and chairs seem like they're about a million years old. And you sit down at this table and go, I just know one of them sat here. I am sitting where Paul McCartney sat. Maybe he maybe he and John sat across from each other and jotted lyrics down for Love Me Do. Who knows? But yeah. like the history in that part of the city, it's just, it's like, it's just coming off the bricks of every building. You go, Oh my God, this is like, there's a vibe here, you know? That's cool. Yeah. And it, it's funny too, because the, with the international pop overthrow, uh, they, they do a mixture of, you know, bands they bring into whatever town the festival is in that week with local bands and the local bands in Liverpool, man, they were just incredible. And they're all like really young. Um, <laughs> you see these like, you know, 18, 19 year old guys on stage and just, kicking ass and it's almost like there was this there was kind of like um thing where they're kind of like you know hey we're we're liverpool the beatles are from here we invented power pop so right we're we're defending the title you know they've got some attitude that comes yeah. with the uh location yeah they would take the stage and they just would own it and that was it right home field advantage yeah <laughs> definitely yeah yeah uh, so where can people find you easiest online? I know you've got a lot of stuff up at Bandcamp. Uh, do you have another website or anywhere else? Or is Bandcamp the go-to place? Bandcamp's the go-to place. And I've got it. Um, I have cameranoise.com. So if you type okay. in browser, it just redirects to, to Bandcamp. Um, and then on Bandcamp, you look along the right, there are links to YouTube and, uh, and yeah. Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. I don't know if they're all on there, but the ones I, the ones I kind of like are on there. I've got a couple of you know social media accounts on platforms that I'm not really a fan of. So I figure I'd got to be on here. I don't want to direct people to it. So, Well, I will put up links to Bandcamp for sure. And uh, a couple of those things and, and put them on the, on the homepage at mrsuave.com. And I really appreciate your taking the time and uh, Likewise, I love the yeah. music and I love to share good music and tell people about it. I can't play a lick of music i can't keep time i have no rhythm i can listen though i'm a good listener yeah uh, and i i know good music when i hear it and uh you have that so thank you that's great yeah and, and thanks for uh for arranging the interview this has been fantastic i can't believe it's like been an hour it's just like zoomed right by so zoomed right by yes it did <laughs> <laughs> so, oh no pun intended yes but uh yeah all right yeah well thank you very much to tim cameron tc folk punk a.k.a. Camera Noise. Uh, you will find all the links up at mrsuave.com. And again, thank you so much. Loved having you. Thanks. Forgive me if I seem so sardonic. I'm not bitter as what's in the shit and tonic. Now I become so so ironic as we cross the line from pleasure to platonic but I'm not bitter I've seen it all before no I'm not bitter if anything I'm bored 
ice cubes melting hand So is my enthusiasm Toast the opening Of one final chasm I'll endeavor to Swallow my sarcasm While overlooking the Y4s and whereasms But I'm not bitter Nothing wrong with me But suffice to say That in a way There's something wrong with us I feel compromised By my position Guaranteed to be A hidden misproposition Before you reload Your verbal ammunition Keeping my one thing